Hey, hello, I'm Pastor Robert. I'm glad that you're here with me today. And we're gonna we're all here to grow deeper in the love of Jesus, whether you're a believer or not. And I have a subject that we must talk about today that I know can be difficult for some. And today we need to talk about marriage. In today's sermon, we'll, I'm going to try to provide a biblically grounded definition of marriage. And we need to talk about LGBTQ. And I wrote this sermon series probably four months ago or so. And I didn't realize that these texts today fall on the first Sunday of, of Pride Month. It's the first Sunday of June. That's a coincidence. I didn't plan that out. I didn't think about it. Um, yeah, it's more of a coincidence than my planning or anything. And so if you're like with me today and you're part of LGBTQ, you identify in that in some way, I want you to know that like I want you here. I want you to like listen to this and I want you to be a part of our church and our community. You're created in the image of God and you're loved by him and he desires you. And so I hope that through this, and if you'd stick with me, I hope that you feel seen and dignified. I want this to be a conversation where we all learn to think more deeply and to love more widely. You know that 83% of LGBT people grew up attending church and more than 50% left the church at age 18. And primarily they don't leave for theological reasons, but for relational ones. And when we talk about LGBT people, we're not talking about people out there somewhere. We're talking about people in here. These are real people who have really left the church. You know, people are not born with anti-Christian gene. They have a story that contributes to why they left the church or why they're negative towards the church. And the story of how the church has treated the LGBT people has not been good. A Drew Harper says that to be gay in the American evangelical church is to be dead. You're an outcast, an orphan, a refugee, a diseased person. And this is the normal story for LGBT people. And here's the deal. We need to get the Bible right. We need to understand what it means in its context. As a Christian, as a pastor, as a theologian, I am committing... I am committed to letting the text lead wherever it may go. If I come to the Bible and let it speak and it leads to a traditional view of marriage, I'll go with that. But if it doesn't, let the text lead. So we must get the Bible right. We must get the Bible right. But if we get love wrong, we are wrong. Love and truth are not separate things. We don't have love over here and truth over here. Instead, we must recognize that love and truth are embodied in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ embodies both love and truth together. Romans 2.4 says, Do you not realize that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? It is the kindness of God that leads to repentance. So often as a church, we focused on repentance and have missed kindness. There's a saying inside of the LGBTQ community, there is no hate like Christian love. The experience of the LGBTQ people of Christians has often been far from the kindness. And I think this is why, you know, Christians boycotting Target is stupid. It distances the truth of Christ from his love and kindness. And today our text, it's going to lead us to define marriage. 
and we're going to spend the, the next three weeks talking about marriage and singleness. So I'll be defining marriage. Next week, Paul will be talking about living in marriage. And then the week after that, in two weeks, I'll be talking about living in singleness. I think the best thing that we can do today is to define marriage in a biblical way as a foundation for the next three sermons. And I want to let the scriptures lead us. And so today, our, uh, our scripture is from 1 Corinthians chapter 6, where we're going to start at verse 9 to 13. And here's what he says. He says, Do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything. You say... Food is for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy them both. So Paul here, he begins with a list of sins. And oftentimes we can like see this list and we can apply it outward. Look at all these sinful gay people or whatever, because you know, like if you're straight, you don't have any sins. Um, but these lists are not meant to be used as like weapons to bash others. Instead, these lists are here as mirrors so that we can see ourselves. Let me put a word in here on this phrase, men who have sex with men, because the Greek word here is malakos. All commentators agree that this is restricted by scripture, but there's a debate about what it is restricting. I'm not gonna go in depth into malakos and the hermeneutics and lexical meanings or whatever. The overwhelming majority of Christians throughout history have applied this to all homosexual acts. There's a very small number of recent people who see this applying to homosexual relationships that are exploitative in nature. You have somebody who has more wealth or status or whatever, kind of using that to exploit somebody else in a homosexual way. Whatever. I could do a whole talk unpacking both arguments. For now, it's probably enough for me to recognize that this argument exists and to tell you that I don't see the evidence about exploitation being all that strong. All right. But when Paul begins, he says... He wrongdoers. He's talking about wrongdoers. He begins with wrongdoers and then ends by saying, that is what some of you were. And everything in the middle is this list of sins. And this set of verses has often been used as like a battering ram against homosexuality and all things LGBTQ. But that was not the point that Paul was making. Paul is saying, you should see yourself in this list. This is what some of you were. But he goes on. He goes on, he continues, we have to remember that grace entered our stories. We are people who were washed, sanctified, and justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of God. See, Paul is not writing about a literary or imaginary people. He's writing about an incredible miracle, a church of redeemed sinners, one from their old lifestyles by the power of God. This list is a mirror to ourselves and our church today. We, me, you, are people who have lived this way. The Greek has an interesting repetition of the word, but, that is not found in our version. It says that some of you were this way, 
but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. See, this repetition, it notes and highlights who we were against the work of God in our lives. We have been washed clean from the sins of our past. Now what? The Corinthians say in verse 12, I have the right to do anything. See, the Greek here is an expression, a right by law, like I have the legal right to do anything. And so the NRSV translates this better as uh, all things are lawful for me. And Paul is quoting the Corinthians here. And Paul offers them a correction in their own quotation. He says, all things might be lawful, but they're not beneficial. They might be lawful, but you shouldn't be mastered by them. There's this list of things they might be lawful to do, but they're not beneficial to who you are. He's telling them, don't let what is lawful become all-encompassing for your life. Like we can get in our own heads. (coughs) Excuse me. We can get in our own heads and we can... Uh, almost like try to like navigate this, let me find the loophole so that I can do this and I can be in the right because I got this loophole or whatever. And that's not, doesn't work. You know, at, at the start of COVID, Franklin Graham, he's the son of Billy Graham, he made a mistake. New York City was slammed by COVID and he wanted his organization, Samaritan's Purse, to set up shop in Central Park. And the city, though, had closed the park for the most part. They didn't want people spreading germs as their hospitals were overrun. And Franklin Graham, he recognized Central Park as like the hub of New York. And he wanted to put himself and his organization right in the center spotlight. And there were some issues with this. Um, Samaritan's Purse has a statement of faith that they recognize marriages between one man and one woman. And so then there's these LGBTQ activists that wondered if Samaritan's Purse would treat LGBTQ patients. That wasn't really an issue. They were treating those patients the exact same. And so the city, though, kind of latched onto this and they opposed having Franklin Graham and Samaritan's purse set up there, saying, like, we don't need these people in Central Park. Maybe try somewhere else. And a church a few blocks away offered up their sanctuary, their massive church as a center for Samaritan's purse. And Franklin Graham said, no. He wanted to be in Central Park. What he did is he let his ego and his pride get in the way. He let his rights get in the way of actually helping people. And from this, Franklin Graham and Samaritan's Purse is now viewed more unfavorably. Their their favorability rating has dropped, especially in New York. He was legal. He was right. But that doesn't mean it was good. Just because a thing is legal does not mean it's good. See, we can press our rights, but it might not be helpful. And Franklin Graham allowed his rights to master him. Do you hold on to your rights and your legalities? Do you try to find wiggle room in the law to have like your own way? See, you might have the legal leg to stand on, but is it actually helpful? See, Paul is going to connect this idea about legality and benefit to marriage. Let's read on. This is verse 13 to 16 in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord is for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body, 
for it is said, the two will become one flesh. The body is meant for the Lord, and the Lord is for the body. In a theology of sex and sexuality, recently the church has shied from this position that the Lord is for the body. See, there's a healthy, godly expression of sexuality that God has created for us. And marriage is that healthy expression. Two weeks ago, I gave a number of statistics about on unhealth, about how unhealthy our hookup culture is. And, you know, briefly, to summarize those, only one quarter of people who engage in regular hookups are thriving. The majority of people who have engaged in a hookup at all say it was traumatic. That's more than 50% of people who have hooked up with somebody say it was traumatic. My position then is that marriage is the healthy expression of sexuality against our hookup culture. And that is because marriage is important to God. Marriage is important to God. Oftentimes, when we talk about marriage and sex, uh, the first question is, what do you care who gets married? What do you care what they do in their bedroom? And I think that's a fair question, but I don't think that's the first question. I think the first question shouldn't be, what do I care? But rather, what is marriage? And let's unpack this a bit. What is marriage? How does the Bible define it? So if we go all the way back to Genesis 1, God creates the male and female. Male and female, he created them. That's Genesis 1.27. And all of Genesis 1 is a poem that highlights combination pairs that build on itself. You have light and dark, day and night, morning, evening, land, air, sea, sky, male, female. And in Genesis 2, God continues the creation story in 20, verses 23 and 24. The man said, look, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. And that is why man leaves his father and mother and he's united to his wife and they become one flesh. So let me get super nerdy. Let me get super nerdy for like two minutes. The logic of 224, where it says, that is why, or some translations will say, therefore. <coughs> this logic is connected back to 223. So we see like, that is why a man leaves his father and mother, he's united to his wife, they become one flesh, because the man said, this is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh, and she shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. And so this idea of marriage as man and woman coming together is grounded in the creation story. This is where I'm going to get super nerdy. The Hebrew uses the term one flesh to refer to marriage. And this one flesh is based on who man and women are in creation as image bearers, that we bear the image of God. And so because of that, therefore, that is why a man leaves his father and mother, he's united to his wife, they become one flesh. And if you disagree, know that Jesus agrees with me. <laughs> Sorry, if you flip over to Matthew 19, chapter, chapter 19, verses 4 and 5, Jesus is talking about divorce, but here's what it says. He answered, this is Jesus answered, have you not read that the one who made them at the beginning made them male and female? So this is a quotation from Genesis 1, 27, and said, and Jesus continues, and said, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. The two shall become one flesh. Here's where the nerdiness really comes out. 
Jesus here is talking about a divorce. He's not talking about marriage. I guess divorce is a sad part of marriage. Jesus quotes both Genesis 1 and 2, but he doesn't connect the for this reason that's found in 2.24 back to 2.23, but he connects it back to 1.27. I think he does this for a reason. It's because marriage is a reflection of God's creation. Jesus just goes back and says, hey, for this reason, because God made them male and female, they become one flesh. Because God made them, they get married. Because God made them male and female, they become one flesh and get married. And if we think about, and when we think about what is marriage, marriage is a reflection of God's creation. And as we all dive deeper into theology and in, in biblical study, we learn that the story of God is important. God, through creation, is setting the stage for his story. And marriage is a reflection of God's story where two come together as one. In the story of God, we, we who are different, become one with God as he reconciles himself, as he reconciles us to him. So Christian sexuality, sex in the confines of marriage then, is telling of God's story. It's this two becoming one flesh. Ask somebody after a hookup if they think they've told God's story. This is a total paradigm shift away from what our culture usually thinks. See, marriage is important and sexuality is important because it tells God's story. So let me apply this to our culture today. Because in our culture today, we have two different definitions of marriage. We have a covenant marriage that reflects God's creation and tells his story. And we have civil marriage that reflects the lawful marriage of two people. See, a civil marriage is broken at will through legal divorce. A covenant marriage under the reflection of God's creation and his story is so much more difficult to break. And as a church, we've done a poor job of like recognizing these differences. And what we've done is we've allowed our cultural understandings to overtake our covenant understandings. And there are some Christians that like to talk about the dangers of same-sex marriages eroding the institution at the same time that divorce rates are the same for Christians and non-Christians. Do you know who's eroding the Christian covenantal understanding of marriage? Christians. And Paul continues on in verse 14 to 16. God raised the Lord and will also raise us by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Should I therefore take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that whoever is united to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For it is said, the two shall be one flesh. See, there was a time that I was talking about a Republican politician. He'd been married three times. And this particular politician had cheated on his second wife with his third wife while his second wife was in the hospital. And I don't remember which politician I was talking about because there are multiple that fit that category. The truth is, you don't fix your adultery by marrying your mistress. You continue it. By biblical understandings, you don't fix your adultery by marrying your mistress. You continue it. Our culture says, seek out your happiness, get a divorce, marry her, that'll be fine, it'll be better then. I'm convinced, I'm convinced that there are more unbiblical marriages 
amongst Christians than there are same-sex marriages. There are more unbiblical marriages amongst Christians than there are unbiblical same-sex marriages. There's only like 500,000 same-sex marriages in the United States. I'm going to guess. I'm, I think, I'm convinced that there are more than 500,000 unbiblical Christian marriages. As the church in America, we've allowed the cultural definition of, civ- of a civil definition of marriage to usurp the covenantal definition that scripture provides. Let me be clear. I'm all for civil marriages. Marry whoever you want. I'm all for gay marriage, trans marriage. I don't care in a civil sense. In fact, I think just me speaking, it would be wrong to deny opportunities of civil marriage to LGBTQ couples. But I cannot extend the same covenantal definitions to LGBTQ marriages. The text I find doesn't allow it. And when scripture talks about marriage, it includes a biological sex difference. There's this idea of pluralism and fundamentalism. See, pluralism is like we have all these different groups of people, Christians, non-Christians, Buddhists, atheists, whoever, that all need to live together with one another in a society. And we need to do that in a way that's healthy and good. Fundamentalism, though, says we know what's best for you. And so we will do all that we can to force you to live under these laws in our way. There are Christian fundamentalists and there are LGBTQ fundamentalists. And here's the issue with Christian fundamentalism. Here's the issue with trying to force Christian ideals as laws. You cannot legislate a person into a relationship with Jesus Christ. Christ is the one who raises us from the dead. He came not to make bad people good, but to make dead people live. Remember that God is for the body. God is for the body. There is a sexuality that glorifies him and reflects his story in our lives. We cannot legislate people into that understanding. That is something that happens when they encounter him. When they encounter him and he comes in and changes their hearts. It's not a legislative act. It's a change of the heart. I know this has run long. But here is finally my definition of marriage. Marriage is the covenantal union between two sexually different people, male and female, that reflects God's creation and how his and his story with his creation. So with this in mind, how should Christians act? 1 Corinthians chapter 6 verse 18 to 20. Flee, flee from sexual immorality. <coughs> All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you've received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. So what do Christians do? Christians shun sexual immorality. Sexual immorality is any sexual act outside the confines of a covenantal marriage. If you are a Christian, you are not your own. You were bought with a price. You don't belong to yourself. You belong to God. You are a temple of the Holy Spirit and God lives in you. I want our stories to reflect God's work in in our lives to make us live. Your body is God's temple. Do you treat yourself that way? Does your self-image reflect that God is for your body? 
When you look in a mirror, when you look in a mirror, can you believe that God sees you? He sees your body and he says, I'm for this. I'm for you. And it doesn't matter your body fat percent, your scars, your stretch marks, your wrinkles, or your orientation. God is for your body. There's a recurring question in my mind that's been running through again and again and again. And it's, do I risk? Do I risk the intimacy of meaningful friendships or do I settle for the momentary thrill of meaningless sex? Do I risk the intimacy of meaningful friendships or do I settle for the momentary thrill of meaningless sex? You were bought with a price. What are you doing with your body? Do you treat it as the temple that it is? Do your reactions reflect unity with the Lord and the Spirit and His story? And one of the awesome things about our church is that we are all in very different places in our faith journeys. And perhaps today, like, you don't know Jesus and you've never made a step to embrace Him with your physical body. And when we, under, when we believe and we understand that God is for this, God is for our bodies, we can ask, what should we do with our bodies then? And perhaps you've never heard that God is for the body. And that might be strange to hear a pastor say because sometimes we've done a really poor job of teaching this. Or perhaps you've known Jesus a long time and you want to use your body to bring him glory, but you don't know how. I want to give all of us a way that we can use our bodies today, right now, to show that your body is for the Lord and to embrace the reality that the Lord is for your body. Because today we have the opportunity to take hold of his body with ours in the form of communion. In communion, we as a community embrace the body of Jesus Christ with our own. On the cross, Jesus gave his body for us and it was resurrected three days later. And we recognize that that sacrifice is for us. It's for our bodies. And so we physically consume the bread and the juice as a reminder that we are his and he is for us. So I invite you to take communion, to enjoy that, to embrace it as a reflection that God is for your body and you are for his. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're thankful for all that you've done for us. Would you just continue to lead and guide us to live with our bodies in a way that glorifies you. We want this and we want to do this, Lord, in your name. Amen.